The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gawel. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. For many Indian tourists, the western state of Goa is the capital of hedonism. A place where you can get wasted and smother your face with butter garlic crab at 3am. And then eat squid and a kingfish for lunch by the Arabian Sea. All to be photographed and fed to your hungry Instagram feed. A large part of this hedonism is premised on this fantasy that the sea exists to serve you. The fish in it you imagine to be abundant and free the source of the shine in the water and the gloss on your skin. But peel through the layers of this holiday postcard and things are not what they seem. This is Bad Table Manners, a show that seeks to push the boundaries of food reporting and narrative in South Asia. I'm your host, Meher Varma. Spine of Bad Table Manners is decidedly thick and gracefully a little crooked, thanks to those who want to have conversations that move through what are conventionally understood as high and low food cultures in India, while trying to dismantle the hierarchies that organize them as such. It is informed by my training as a Delhi-based cultural anthropologist and is made for people like myself who aren't expert cooks or food historians, but get the feeling that through food, 
we can understand a lot about other social structures that organize our everyday lives in South Asia. This show is also for people who dream of opening restaurants and those who think that there's not a stupider thing that you can do with your time and money. Or those who are straight up annoyed at how the American actress Gwyneth Paltrow made turmeric hip while Indians just know it as the no-big-deal spice that went into half the things we ate. And rest assured, between discussions on the ongoing farmer protests and the relationship between caste and food, I'll make a fairly chill argument for why we should still talk about mangoes, even though we've talked about them so much already. In this season, Mango Chat appears like the fruit does in the midst of the brutal Indian summer, as a miraculous disruption. Some conversations may be a bit difficult, others will be fun, but through the ride, I promise you'll be part of a scene that's open, relaxed, and sometimes outright hunger-inducing. Thank you for joining me. Marine conservation scientist Arrow Lobo is the main guest on this first episode of Bad Table Manners. When he heard about the boundaries I was trying to break through conversations about food in India, we got chatting. I won't talk about chai or butter chicken I promised him in my first email, and thankfully, he was quick to bite. Here's a true story. I met Aaron not so long ago when a friend and I were looking for a place to get our legs waxed in a tiny village in Goa. He knew exactly where to take us. Only later I discovered it isn't beauty salon hunting, but marine conservation that is his real speciality. Aaron holds a master's degree from the Wildlife Institute of India and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. He's also a member of several conservation committees globally and works with policymakers to figure out how conservation strategies can prioritize indigenous knowledge. On this first episode, Aaron takes us on a deep dive into the fishing industry in the western Indian state of Goa, a place often equated with sun, sand, sea and susagad, which means content-filled relaxation. But in reality, the word sodad, which means bittersweet, actually describes the scene a lot better. Upon closer introspection, we learn that there are not that many fish in the sea after all, and how our modern glamorized pescatarian diets are not as healthy or sustainable than the diets we try to leave behind in the quest for evolution. That is, the diets of indigenous Goans. There's a lot that happens out at sea, there's a lot that happens on the farm that we have to be more cognizant of. We can no longer be lazy consumers because I think that is one of the biggest sources of uh, the problems and the crisis we see in the food system today. I mean, we have more of these eco-labels than we ever did, but it's not put us in any better shape than we were say, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. So I think it's really important to re-engage and reconnect to our food system. The London-based author, Saman Subramaniam, will also offer us little palate cleansers through this episode as he reads excerpts from his non-fiction book, Following Fish. His Goa chapter is like the perfect wine pairing to this bittersweet meal. Goa's is an economy of idleness. Not an economy made up of idle people but an economy that relies on the human desire to idle. To idle is to linger, and to linger is to buy more stuff, eat more stuff, and do more stuff on jet skis. Thence, the Goan economy. Over the few days I spent shadowing Aaron, we went to local fish markets, restaurants, and jetties all over Goa. Aaron knows these places like the back of his hand. While I looked for road signs and directions on Google Maps, his hints were the smells in the air and birdsong. 
And though for Aaron, this deception of the holiday postcard that marks Goa was evident everywhere, I really began to understand the trouble when he unpacked the performance for me at the market. Walking through the damp alleys bustling with fisherwomen, it was hard not to ogle at the size of the fish and delight in the rustles of clamshells. The fantasy of the local and the fresh is reinforced by this abundance. Unless you're with someone like Aaron who can tell you what's really up. So what you're seeing in the market today is slightly different from what you would have seen in a similar traditional Goan market setting, say in the 80s or the 90s. In those days, what you saw in the market was very representative of what you caught out at sea that particular day. It was typically the catch of the day. Today, what is happening is our seafood markets are no longer local, but very global. And it's not just in Goa, it's pretty much the rest of India and many other parts of the world where seafood comes from everywhere to meet a consumer demand. But in this case, I would say it's largely national. We observe a two-month monsoon fishing ban, which is a fishing restriction or a seasonal ban that starts from June and ends at August. And it coincides with the monsoons. So trawlers, which are the major producers of seafood in the state, do not land any of the seafood catch. But a lot of the seafood still comes into the state from other states. Most consumers are not aware of this. So it's it's really coming from everywhere. So what we think of as freshness is very easy to be misled. However, this does give it an impression of freshness. When you came into this market, you just felt that there was this diversity. And it's really great to see the diversity around us. You know, you've got clam, you've got crabs of different kinds, you've got shrimp of different kinds, you've got barracuda, a little tunny, a whole range of species. And all this gives it appearance of freshness. And this is actually what the fish merchants rely on. They bring it to these traditional market spots. They even bring it to some of our fish landing sites. Very often at the time of the auctions in the morning, to kind of give it this uh, feeling of the catch of the day. But most people are actually being misled. Many of the so-called fresh fish they eat is not just two or three days. It's very often, you know, over seven to 10 to 15 days, sometimes even over several months old. Most tourists, including myself, revel in the fact that what we are eating in Goa is fresh. But most of what's on our plate is far from it, by historical standards, and unlikely to be native. What is often presented to us at restaurants is a piece of the sea on ice. And this has a lot to do with the fact that many of us buy into the image of freshness, which fuels the performance of the market. There are several variables that go into kind of making a fresh fish. It's not just the kind of glossiness of its body, but it's also the way the body feels. And in Goa, we have the habit of touching food before we buy it. We touch the fish. It's not recommended you do that, but people touch fish very often to see whether the body is taut or whether it's it's kind of soft. If it's soft, it's not fresh. Similarly, there uh, you see people very often opening the gills to see if they're bright red in color and they have a bit of mucus. When they do that, you know, they are fresh. So there are several variables that go into making a fresh fish. And this is something a lot of uh, the traditional Goan communities or most of our parents knew how to do. They knew how to get to the markets and shop for their own fish. Now, when you see everything in a supermarket, it's in a refrigerator. You have a whole diversity of species, but most people are not able to tell what a fresh fish is from one that's been stored in a freezer for several days. 
As he says this, I'm telling myself to look for the fish that look kind of hungover. But aside from identifying one or two that look clearly grey, I have trouble picking out the real beauties. What's even wilder is that in addition to not knowing the origins of their seafood, Aaron tells me that species names change when they cross oceans. Literally. He explained that people may be enjoying a certain kind of catfish called basa, for example. But what they're eating has been given a much more fashionable name. When I learn of all of this, I begin to think of the fish market as a kind of show, where the fish are actors with stage names. In Canada, it's called Basa. If you go to England, uh, you call it the River Cobbler. Now, if you just told people it was catfish, maybe a lot of people would not consume it. So they mislabel it or they give it a label that is more palatable in a way. You had another fish, you know, which is this threatened species called the Patagonian toothfish, which was caught off the coast of southern Argentina. Now, with a name like the Patagonian toothfish, you wouldn't have a lot of people wanting to eat it. But now it's being sold in high-end restaurants around the world, being called the Chilean sea bass. So if the fishing industry is one big show that concludes in its most polished form in New York, what came before? What was it like before capitalism totally hijacked going fishing? Aaron tells me that it's important to take a few steps back when I contemplate this. The changes really began when trawler boats, the sea symbol of industrialization, entered our waterways in a massive way, changing the landscape forever. This put an end to the sweet, often romanticized days of artisanal fishing. So I could say the true sort of industrialization or capitalization in fisheries took place actually in the late 1950s in India when trawlers were first introduced. These were large mechanized fishing vessels which had inboard engines for the first time. Before that, the sea was largely sort of sail-propelled artisanal crafts. And in some cases, few started getting outboard motors. But trawlers were introduced in Goa, I would say, in the late 1960s, early 70s. And this changed a lot because you moved from a system wherein the small-scale fishermen mainly contributed to domestic consumption, food and nutrition security of the region and the locale, whereas trawlers, when they were introduced, they were primarily targeting high-value commercial species such as shrimp and a few high-value species like cuttlefish, squid, emperor, snapper, and species that could go into the export markets. Trawl nets were not selective. You can imagine a large windsock with very fine mesh, which keeps decreasing from the mouth of the net and kind of tapering off to what is called the cord end, where the catch gets sort of concentrated. Trawlers just drag along the ocean floor and by doing this, they can actually pick up an entire ecosystem within their path. Now imagine you take a large bulldozer or a large net to a tropical evergreen forest to catch a few squirrels but you pretty much get the entire ecosystem in it. When I first started working on trawlers, which was to kind of understand how they were impacting incidentally caught species such as sea snakes, etc., it opened my eyes to a very wide issue just of the cost of seafood production because trawling, even though it's extremely efficient, it is one of the most destructive fishing methods globally. And many countries have made a push to end bottom trawling because of the huge destruction on incidentally caught species on entire ecosystems that are impacted 
and also on commercially important seafood because ultimately this was impacting uh, livelihoods in the long run. So what we're seeing now is a kind of a already degraded ecosystem. Yes, we still do have the artisanal or the small scale fisheries, but then we also have the trawlers operating alongside of them. The trawlers, which were once highly profitable, are no longer that way. You know, many of them are struggling to make ends meet because of rising fuel, storage costs, labor costs, etc. So the fishing industry is actually in a bit of a struggle overall. Even if we must resist romanticization, there was a lot that was good about the past. The catch, for example, was distributed within villages so everyone had access to protein, and the act of collecting catch was carefully timed. So I'm definitely not one to romanticize about the past, but one thing is very clear that the artisanal fishers were strongly reliant and they had a very good understanding of local ecologies, not just currents, tides, but also what time to catch fish, that fish depended on healthy ecosystems to boost their production. Just looking in the Shapura River, as you can see across, there's this line of bamboo poles that is pushed into the mud. Now, this is what's called a stake net. How the stake net works is basically there is a net that's put around these stakes of the bamboo poles like a curtain, which is raised during the high tide. And the idea behind it is that the fish that come into the mangrove areas, they kind of hide between the prop roots and the very complex root system that the mangroves provide, which act as nurseries for many of these fish species. The idea is is a very passive technique. And it's used only during the springtide, which happens approximately four times a month. When the tide is going out, pretty much all the fish gets trapped in the net. And the net is kind of pushed back down. And then you see a few fishermen who have specific rights to fish in this area who go out collecting their seafood. It's not open access. It's very closed in that. And basically, in a way, the fishers clearly know that a healthy mangrove ecosystem also equates to healthy production of seafood. But the fishing industry operates very differently. It's not about skill and angling or a deep knowledge about the sea. It's about extraction. And this changes things both in the water and in the cultural ecology. So even though the trawl fisheries came in only as late as 1960s and the 1970s, and they're considered high-tech, mechanized, these are the terms that are used, very efficient in the way they catch stuff, I would actually consider them a bulk fishing method that is actually producing lower quality in terms of what the consumer wants. A lot of the fish is getting compressed to the fag end of the net compared to, say, an artisanal fisher who would catch something with a line or with a bottom set kill net will produce a much better quality fish for the plate. But another problem with the whole trawl industry is the amount of waste that they produce. The trawlers themselves would waste it either by discarding this low value, what is called as bycatch, the non-commercially caught species. But actually in the recent past, over the last decade and a half, landing this low value bycatch, which are countless of tiny juveniles of species. And what is done is it's basically dried, ground and used as feed in the poultry and the other animal feed industries, including to feed farmed fish. Another major issue when it comes to speaking about industrial versus artisanal fishers is one that pertains to skill. 
Now, when you think of the labor that work on a trawl boat or a trawl vessel, many of the crew come from several other states. Some indeed come from other coastal states along the east coast of India, but a good majority of the crew on Goan trawling fleets are people who are not from Goa like they once were. This has a lot to do with labor seeking migration and it also results in many people from states that have never really interacted or never really seen the sea coming into work on trawlers. What this tells you is that to work on a trawler doesn't require much skill as compared to say working on an artisanal craft or artisanal fishing method. The modern day appetite for fish is proportionate to its exploitation as Aaron explains. Of course, if you've never seen the sea, your concept of what a resource looks like and how it should be used is very different than that of a traditional fisherman. In addition to different fishing methods, another big change is that in the past, everything that was caught would be used, and some of it would be dried and saved for leaner months or monsoon season. Unlike today, people would eat the entire fish, and they had a much more well-rounded sense of a balanced diet, or a sustainable diet, even though it was never called that. In the years gone by, I'm talking about four to five decades ago, there was very little that was actually wasted. And before that, most of the fish you caught, you consumed in some way or the other. The cormot is just this mixed bag of whatever else you caught that was not your most important commercial species. But in many ways, this formed the key to your delicious curries. So it is not just the homogeneous use of prawns or kingfish or pomfret. But it was this mixed bag, what they call cormot, you know, sometimes mixed with some dry fish as well, which made the curries even more delicious. Now, again, as I've said before, consuming the entire fish, you ate the bones, you ate the organs, and all these were nutrient dense. And these were a very important source of several vitamins like vitamin A, vitamin B12, selenium. And today, uh, when we think about it, a lot of development NGOs are trying to reintroduce this dry fish in a form of powder, which can just be mixed with rice, particularly in coastal communities in Bangladesh, etc. You know, it kind of shows very positive results on health overall. But if you think about it, this is what many of these communities were doing all along. They were eating these small fish. This was very much part of their diet. Sadly, this has been robbed from many of them since the industrialization of fisheries. And this is what we are seeing in a big way. So it's important to kind of recognize these various facets, particularly of the fact that everything has not just an ecological value, but also a livelihood and a food security value. And this is something that we need to kind of keep in mind whenever we think about sustainability. It's not just sustainable ecosystems, but it's also sustainable livelihoods and food security of millions that depend on this. An introduction to the past implanted from the outside is sometimes what happens with ecological reform. Or then foods of the poor become elite or trendy. But this has terrible consequences because it makes protein, and often the sole source of it, inaccessible to less privileged communities. In the case of Goa, it is these communities that would eat the entire fish and gain a lot from it too. There's no doubt this kind of elite push for many of foods that were once the food of the common man. You can think of a whole range of species. Today, people are talking about eating the smaller fish lower down the food web. But sadly, this is being you know, capitalized by many high-end restaurants. 
the trend started in many parts of Europe and in the US, but it's kind of following in very quick suit in India and other parts. And this is, there's always a risk in this. We need to kind of recognize it that these foods are basically for communities that need the nourishment the most. They don't have a regular sort of supply of cod liver oil capsules or multivit proteins, but they obtain these from their food. And it's important to kind of improve our food systems overall. But if you go to a restaurant for the upper middle class or the upper class and you order a fish, what you're likely to get is a big dinner plate sized filet. Let's say a mahi mahi that goes nicely with a starch table napkin and a chilled beer. And you think you're eating finely. But this is not the way it's always been. The fish tailored to the dinner plate became a thing right around when the Indian economy liberalized in the 90s. Otherwise, the big fish had big value only at really big events. And this modern appetite for large fish has created its own large share of problems. There is a general trend to eat species that are larger, that are predators in the marine food web. Now you can think of species like tuna, in the context of Goa, also species like Asian sea bass, the Malabar grouper, the Indo-Pacific king mackerel called kingfish out here, east worn locally. So there's a general preference to eat these uh, species, which was not the case always. And the reason for this is that most people do not like their fish with all the bones, etc. And the larger ones generally have bigger bones or much fewer bones. They are very easy to kind of fillet and served as plate size fillets. This is a big problem from two points of view. One, there's quite a lot of research that's shown that basically eating species that are predators or higher up the marine food webs can have very catastrophic consequences on the ecosystem because many of these predators uh, play a very important role in ecosystems in controlling prey species, but they are also fewer. They take very long to reach sexual maturity and they have long lives. So the thing is, if you catch a shoal of grouper before they actually are sexually mature and able to reproduce, it could have a huge impact on the population. Now, this contrasts very starkly, say, with the smaller species like oil sardine or anchovy that have a very short life, but they live in huge shoals. They're able to reproduce and lay thousands of eggs compared to a few in the larger predators, and their populations can easily bounce back. From the sustainability point of view, there's always a recommendation, say, from marine ecologists to preferably eat lower down the marine food web, that is, the prey species like anchovies, sardine, etc. There is another reason we should be following this rule of thumb, and that is uh, from the health point of view. Now, a lot of the species that are higher up the marine food web tend to accumulate toxins, particularly heavy metals, mercury, etc., because it magnifies up the marine food chain. So what you would find, say, in an anchovy would be in a much, much smaller concentration as compared to what you would see in tuna or what you would see in a shark or what you would see in a grouper. So it's more advisable from both the sustainability point of view as well as the health point of view to eat something lower down the marine food web. Over the years, having spent extensive time with fishers, not just in Asia, but also in West Africa, working on a whole range of fishing crafts, I've got to experience traditional diets, the stuff they typically consume. 
One of the things I remember back in 2002 when I used to work aboard trawlers off the coast of Goa was that they never consumed the high-value shrimp, the high-value fish that went to the export markets. It was always the low-value mixed bag, the cormot that was thrown into the curry. You know, this is where I learned that it's not, you know, the typical high-value stuff that you see in the restaurants that is consumed out here. And this was, for me, so much more delicious. The flavors were very distinctive, raw, and it's something that I remember till this day. And I feel that today the way we prepare curries in many hotels and many restaurants have actually lost that kind of zing. And just the ingredients that they use are not fresh. It's basically a powdered packed masala uh, that they use to prepare a curry and it tastes nothing like what I had on those boats. If you're a bit fished out, this palate cleanser comes in at a good time. It's only mildly about fish. Samant Subramaniam offers his own reflections on fishing in his book, calling it one of the victims along Goa's, quote, determined path to the idols of tourism, end quote. That list of unfortunates includes fishing, an activity that has for some centuries been a staple Goan pastime, a subsistence profession as well as a flourishing local industry. It's a simple matter nearly anywhere on the Indian coast to turn to the person next to you and spark a conversation about fish as food. Only in Goa, however, is it as simple to talk about the act of fishing itself? As if by some vast, ordained consensus, Goans told me, time after time, and in the same words, fishing is in our blood. They sketched for me bucolic visions of the Goan villager stepping out of her hut, her son and daughter by her side, and rustic rods in their hands, to spend a quiet evening by the river. One person called fishing the only activity that truly cuts across every Goan religion and caste. Another described his boyhood to be the sort that I thought existed only in Richmond Crompton books, consisting of muddy boys skipping and fighting their way to the water after school, to fish in the homeworkless oblivion until sunset. Everybody fishes, I learned during one particularly effusive discussion. You just need to sit and watch the complete peace with which these riverfront fishermen fish to understand why they are so passionate about it. Even more has changed in the waterways since Subramanian wrote his book more than 10 years ago. Time passes on and people move on. As Aaron tells us, the reason that Goans are able to choose from so many different types of fish now is because of the cosmopolitanist that has always marked Goa, but has intensified, especially during the pandemic. Thousands of people moved to Goa during the lockdown, and they took their appetites and recipes with them. He says people are seeing more species than Goa in the past. And it's not because there are more fish in the sea, but because new populations are moving in and being catered to. This scale of migration is changing Goa in many ways. For example, the culture of fish eating in the hinterland areas. This raises really interesting questions around what we consider invasive, both in the human and fish population. What happens when an invasive species is at home, maybe even more at home than a native one? So what you're seeing is not just a change in the diversity in our ecosystems, but the introduction of certain invasive species that have a potential of causing quite a lot of damage to our ecosystems, and also a change in the introduction of new species in our diets, which we didn't see before. Like you can see here, you have the katla, which is a species of freshwater carp not found in Goa, the rohu similarly, and the paku fish, which is originally sort of a Amazonian species, found in many of the large rivers in Central and South America. So 
we're seeing quite a lot of changes and i think this is happening because of the globalization because of people moving all over the place because of work etc we have similar such introductions not just in goa but in several other parts of india and several other parts of southeast asia as well so it's not just all negative when it comes to the introduction of these species that are pretty much alien to the goan people with a lot of species comes a whole new range of ways of cooking them recipes that we are not familiar with like for example cooking uh, the sorsha elich which is a mustard prepared hilsa a species that's very famed by the bengali community in bangladesh and in india but a fish that's high valued through uh, many parts of the subcontinent and the coming in of these communities has also uh, seen the bringing in of this uh, diversity of uh, recipes and food culture that uh, many of the goans are not familiar with so i think there is a lot of positives that go along with it Aaron and I had a really interesting discussion over lunch about the famous Netflix documentary Seaspiracy. Him and I both know a lot of people who turned vegan after watching it. But Aaron sees things differently. For him, sustainability is not about promising to never eat a fish again. It's more about the way you understand your relationship with the sea. So right now our relationship with the environment is on decline. When we think of the environment and going out, it's mainly going to sort of protected areas, sanctuary or national parks, wilderness areas. It's not environment that exists all around us. Today, our association with waterways in Goa it mainly sort of pertains to recreation and you know relaxing on the beach, but it's not looked at as a very important ecosystem for where our major source of protein comes from in the form of seafood. food for me can be a great lens to the environment in which we live in what we eat where it comes from who produced it what are the costs of its production are questions that we really need to engage with deeply just blindly giving up something is not the sole solution this can often alienate us from the bigger issues of food production and can spur a whole range of new problems so i think we really need to engage very deeply with the food we consume and ask these questions on a very regular basis. But though things are bleak, structural changes are possible, which brings us to where we go from here and where Aaron and others are looking for solutions. He's currently working on a wide range of projects that offer new ways of thinking about sustainability. They unsurprisingly have a lot to do with revisiting the past. Aaron says that what's happening today is happening in a really ad hoc manner. For him working on building indigenous or traditional knowledge systems rather than creating new ones that are alien to the community is where the solution lies to use the knowledge of fishermen. Aaron and many others are striving to secure a better future for Goa's fisheries, but his efforts and that of others like him are pitted against the might of the lucrative fishing industry. Saman Subramaniam paints a vivid scene of the crisis. Moses held up a hand and started taking off on fleshy fingers. the items in this litany of greed after number 3 he abandoned the count and simply began karate chopping the air in despair he condemned the trawlers ripping up the seabed even in the 2 kilometer zone from the coastline that is reserved by law for traditional fishing he talked through gritted teeth about rules broken with impunity or tripped up by corruption of surreptitious fishing even during the 2 month closed season about the pernicious stake nets banned everywhere else in the world but here they put up even in the breeding areas of the river so that all the fry are caught 
he dissected the perpetual state of confrontation between the trawler owners and the rampunkas, the traditional fishermen using the artisanal rampon nets. That conflict has been seething since the 1970s, but even today, he said, every year some boats are burned. This, he said, is an outright war. Thank you for joining us on our maiden voyage of Bad Table Manners. We hope you join us for our next episode and others. I'll be talking about what it takes to be a restaurant owner in New Delhi. It's not all that bad, even if it's a city increasingly filled with ghost kitchens. I'll also take you to the site of the farmers' protests, where you'll get to listen to their incredibly inspired activism. This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer, Jennifer O'Neill, co-script editor Vidya Balachandar, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researchers Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glacier, sound engineer Max Kodolchuk, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, and sound intern Simon Leibendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Bad Table Manners at whetstoneradio.com.